In this episode of Des Island Torah, we have the Zuchut of speaking to Eve Harrow. Eve is a popular Israeli tour guide who focuses on connecting the present to the past with an emphasis on the centrality and relevance of the Torah to many facets of our lives. She tours for Momentum, Israel Bonds, many families, individuals and eclectic groups. She hosts webinars and produces virtual video tours for One Israel Fund, for whom she serves as both Director of Tourism and of Community Development. She's on the board of Cameras Israel Affiliate Perspectiva and Ariel University. She earned an MA in Psychology and Land of Israel Studies in Archaeology. She's been an active member of Mizrahi's programming and lives in Efrat, where she's served for a decade as a local councilwoman. Thank you so much. Eve for joining us today. It's a real zuchot to have you with us. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So it's Desert Island Torah. Three pieces of Torah that you would take with you to a desert island. What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? Really looking forward to learning with you today and finding out your three pieces. So if we jump right in, you ready to go with your okay. first piece? Well, the first piece would obviously be the Tanakh itself, but the whole Tanakh. Um, because it's something that as an Israeli tour guide, I have in my bag all the time, got little pieces of paper in it for wherever I'm going. And uh, it's just, it's like my favorite thing to do is to have that with me. So it would hard for me to be, it's hard for me to imagine, even if I was on a desert island all alone with no one to teach, that I wouldn't want to read the Tanakh and learn even more. Um, I find it as I've gotten older, I found it a book that has so many lessons and so many messages that become more and more relevant to our lives. Like when I was younger, so you read the Tanakh and there's all the stories that we all know about. For example, looking at the verses where the Tanakh is set, it's set in the Middle East, it's set in the land of Israel. And so depending on where my head is at, um, relationships for sure, because I find now that the Tanakh is so, is such it's the best guidebook I think ever on how people should behave with people. Um, for example, I'll give you, um, we have a problem here in the Middle East, for example, with family honor. In the Arab world, if a girl you know, gets raped very often, she will just jump right into this. She might be killed by her own family because she no longer brings honor to the family. 3,500 years ago in the terrible story of Dina, there's no discussion about punishing Dina, who's the victim, the whole question is taking revenge, of course, on the people of Shrem. Should they have? Should they not have? Shimon and Levi. That there's a lot of commentary on that. But I, but I look at that and I see, wow, like so long ago, in the context of a different ancient world, that doesn't even come up with us. And I was having a discussion not long ago with somebody who's going through a little bit of a religious crisis, which happens to many people, and maybe should because you need to rethink things to really make it yours. And he was telling me that he's learning the Tanakh more and more, and it's a terrible book. There's genocide, and we wiped out this one, and we waged wars, and how awful it is, and how can we be proud of the book? And I said to him that the victory of the Tanakh is the fact that those stories appall him. Because in the ancient world and in the context of when the Tanakh was given, that was default mode. That's what everybody did. And the fact that now those kinds of behaviors are seen to him as so terrible and so immoral shows us exactly the victory of the Tanakh 
um, in shaping what people think is moral and isn't. So I said, instead of looking at it and be ashamed, look at the distance that we've traveled, that the world has traveled because of the Torah that we were given, that we disseminated with some help around the world. And it has really changed how the entire world thinks. So don't look at it as to be embarrassed. Look at it as how far we've come. But the Tanakh is just a, a completely unbelievably rich book in so many ways. And I would have to have it with me on a desert island. As a tour guide, what thing in the Tanakh really stands out to you that you see today? What about the Tanakh stands? Like a story, um, well, a place. For... Oh, a story or a That's place? Um, you see today, like always... what really stands out to you and what really connects to you? Right. So, um, well, one thing that's amazing about the Tanakh and Jacob Wright from Emory University wrote a book about this a long time ago. He's not the only one um, that we are shaped by our losses, not our victories. When you compare the Tanakh to other ancient books uh, or like, you know, the pharaohs and the reliefs in Ninveh and in, and in Egypt. And I'm going to Egypt at the end of January, I hope. And I'm so excited to see the context of where our nation was for a long time. Um, then you you see that we, we we take our flaws and we learn from them. So when I go to a place in Israel and I'm able, like today, for example, I was in Ir David. I was in the city of David, New Shalim. I was guiding there with the Tanakh. And, you know, you can go into what Yerushalayim means. Uh, you know, the other day I was in Shiloh um, where the Mishkan was, where we sinned, where we lost the Mishkan, where Shiloh is destroyed. And the tabernacle is no longer there. So the privilege and the immense gift that I've received of being able to live in the land and teach Torah in the land in situ is I can't pick one place because it just, you know, it just speaks to me in so many ways. And the um, the joy that I get in that we've come home just never ends. I was driving a few years ago. I was going through somewhat of an empty nest syndrome. I have seven children and like four of them had left the house at once. One had gotten married and two had gone into the army and one was traveling, whatever it was. I was suddenly like not cooking for an enormous number of people the way I used to. And I was sad. But when they would come home for Shabbat or when I would have them, I would make their favorite food. And I'm driving towards Tel Lachish. Lachish is an unbelievable site. Um, it's a, the, the second most important Judean city that was destroyed by the Assyrians 2,700 years ago. And all of a sudden, I see all these trees blooming, fruit trees. It was the spring. And I started crying so hard, I had to pull off to the side of the road. And I realized that Eretz Yisrael is like our mother. She's so happy that her children came home that she's like exploding with food. And I felt so connected to the land on that level of, you know, this is what we do for our children. And so the Tanakh is everywhere. And when you read the Tanakh, there is no logical reason why we should be home now, why the Jews should still exist. There's so many things that we've gone through. And then the 2000 years since the Tanakh was closed hasn't really been a picnic either. And here we are. And so you read the Nevi'im and they are gloom and doom sometimes. And they're warning us that if you don't knock off the bad behavior, you're going to get tossed. And that's what happens. But there's also the Nevi'im that say one day, like Zechariah, one day men and women, the old men and women will be sitting on their benches in Jerusalem with canes and children will be playing in the streets. And I look at those Nevi'im, at those Nevi'im, I say, wow, like they nailed, they got it. And here we are. And to be able to live and fulfill a Nevi'im, to fulfill a prophecy 
that is was written in the Bible so long ago in circumstances that would have made them say like, really, that's what you're writing? You're out of your mind. This, this whole thing is done is just a, an impre- incredible testament, not just to the faith that we have in, in God, but to the faith that he has in us, despite all the vagaries and all the disappointments and all the bad behavior. He's still with us and we're still here. And the Tanakh is just this incredible blueprint of that relationship and uh, and of everything, you know, that brings us until today. You amazing. think I love what I do? Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. But it's amazing you're, that you're able to connect it with the Tanakh. It's, that's, that's, the, that's the best part, really. We say the Tanakh is relevant for all time. Well, the Tanakh was written a long time ago, and there's certain things in the Tanakh that aren't relevant anymore, right? I mean, or even maybe weren't relevant then. We don't take out an eye for an eye. I don't know if we ever did. You know, we don't stone a son to stone a, son, a boy to death if he's misbehaving. I don't know if we ever did. This is kind of like a warning thing. Um, but uh, but the, the message is in there about the importance of family. Um, you know, the importance of, of family for civilization and the tribe, the greater family who will always have your back. I think to some degree we lost that over the years. And that's that's something that we shouldn't lose because I also I have a master's degree in psychology in addition to a master's in land of Israel studies and archeology. span And that the psychological aspect, you look around the world, you see so many people who are so lonely and they don't have that around them. They don't have common memories with other people, which is what the Tanakh gives us. When we all sit around at Passover Seder and talk about we all left Egypt together, those common shared memories are what, are what make us a people. Um, we, st- we stood at Sinai together. We made the covenant with God. All these things have happened. And like Carl Jung and, and other psycholo- modern psychologists, more or less, talk about the importance of those memories and how you can hand them down. And um, so we have them. And that's and I, I really think that that's why it's such it's such an important book, because it gives that message that we see, you know, in, in we see when people don't have that, how lost they are, how sad they are. I mean, just like Friday night, Shabbat is the biggest gift we were ever given. And Friday night, people getting together here in Israel, it doesn't matter. Friday night is family night. Whether you're driving there, whether you're lighting candles, having light, it's irrelevant. Friday night, Shabbat is such a special day here in Israel. And, uh, and that's really what, you know, what keeps us together and links people together. And of course, the fact that we're now speaking Hebrew again, which is the language of the Tanakh, which was a dead language for a long time. It's the only language that's been revived. You know, we're ordering pizza in Hebrew now in the language of the Bible. So it doesn't make it more, da- more mundane. It makes it so real and so full of life. Uh, so yeah, so that's absolutely, I live the Torah in the sense, not that because I'm some, you know, wonder, some tzaddik, far from it, some righteous person, but because I really feel the Torah in my life at all times and the messages from the Torah and the inspiration from the Torah is very much what inspires me in my daily life. Absolutely. I love that. Really, really special. So are we ready for your second piece of Torah? Yeah, I and some of it I kind of already mentioned, and that's somebody from your neck of the woods, which is close to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And I think he was, and it's just such a shame that he died way too young because I read what he wrote and he was a brilliant mix of, of a philosoph- you know, philosopher in the modern sense, very, very um, well-educated in so many realms and able to merge that with the lessons of the Tanakh and what I said of course now about the importance of family and all of that much of that are things that he said as well 
And uh, so like on, on the holidays, I have his, let's say, Machzor, right, his special, the, he gives the commentary like for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And even though I've had it and read it, you know, for the last couple of years, there's always some new insight. There's always something that he says that I read, I read a sentence and then say it again and say, wow, like that was just so brilliant how he put that together. I can definitely relate having so many of his Sepharim, um, particularly on the parasha, Covenant and Conversation. Um, I think there's studies in spirituality. There's a really new one. I believe all of them. There's always like a line, and you read it, and you're like, "Whoa!" And it really like opens up the parasha, and I think life in general. As he was really able to connect the secular world and the Jewish world and the spiritual world together, and it's really really powerful. The tremendous banks and wealth of knowledge that he had in so many realms, and uh, so I, I really and I'm I'm far from the only one, and uh, and I would say that he's he's really been a big influence as well. And it's funny because I was talking to my husband about this podcast and and what the books that I was going to say, and he said to me, "There's I'm that I'm not bringing any like Gemara or Talmud." Because the third book that I would bring is another modern day rabbi, thankfully still alive. I'll mention him in a minute. And uh, he said, and I said, because they wrote in a certain time, which was relevant for that time. I'm a maniac, a maniac about context, about understanding that when somebody wrote something, what else is going on in their life? Because I know that in my life, I'm very affected by the context of the world that I live in. And, um, and so as much as I love Rashi and love some of the middle, you know, the middle age commentators, Rashi, for example, a friend of mine did a research paper on the fact that Rashi, who's of course the the French, you know, great rabbi of 900 years ago, um, he lived during the time of the Crusades when the Christians are just slaughtering, you know, the Jews in Europe, including, you know, rabbis on his level and yesh- tremendous yeshiva, tremendous places of Torah learning, and like, but miraculously, you know, they don't get to him, and he has nothing nice to say about Esav. Esav, rightly or wrongly, is connected with Christianity. Okay, because he's seen as Edom and the Edomites, Herod the king is is a convert from the Edomites during the Hasmonean period. They convert the Edomites and Herod the king has an Edomite background and Herod is very connected with Rome. And Rome eventually goes Christian, becomes the Byzantine Empire when Constantine adopts Christianity, the emperor in 324. And then, of course, Rome, you know, that's the Christian Empire. And then, of course, the Christians haven't done such amazing things to the Jews over the centuries. And so Rashi, it makes perfect sense to me that Rashi would have nothing nice to say about Esau. And Rashi's a pretty nice guy um, because he's living in the context of the Christians doing horrific things to the Jews. So he's going to kind of put that on Esau, whether it's fair or not. Rashi's a human being, and that's the context of his life. So uh, the, the other rabbi whose works I would bring is Rabbi Natan Lopez Cordoza, who's also a modern day rabbi. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's originally from Amsterdam. Um, He lives in Israel and he is a rebel. And that's what I love about him because um, I believe that Judaism is due for some kind of reformation. Um, We practice Judaism in a certain way for a long time in the diaspora successfully. We're still here today. So something went right, even after the temple is destroyed. And even though we're flung around the world, we're still able to keep the tenets of our faith, be it Shabbat, be it the kosher laws, be it the family purity laws, whatever it is, our communities were able to stay together. 
Torah learning, of course, and that's so important. But now that we're back in our land, there's some different things moving here. And we're not just Jews in our homes and in our synagogues, but we also control the public spaces. And we have political decisions to be made as a Jewish country. We have wars that need to be fought with a Jewish army. You know, some of the halachot, some of the the strictures that today's IDF go by um, were brought down from the Hasmoneans. The last time that we really had an army here defending the Jews was 2,000 years ago, the Hanukkah story, the Maccabees, where they, for example, fought on Shabbat. Initially, we didn't fight on Shabbat. We didn't think we could. So the enemy isn't stupid, and they would attack us on Shabbat. And then it said, no, no, we can't do that. We have to defend ourselves on Shabbat. But that's also not so simple. Can you do something offensive on Shabbat? Can you initiate a battle? Can you move people from place to place in preparing for a battle? So there's a lot of these halachot, and there's a lot of Judaism that affects our day-to-day life in very practical ways that we were not, I would say, privileged because having an army is a difficult thing. And I sent children to the army and I can tell you how difficult it is, but it's a privilege to be able to defend ourselves in a post-Holocaust century. I don't think I have to explain that to our listeners, how important it is that we can defend ourselves. And so there's a lot of halachot that come into play in a modern state that we're kind of it didn't, you know, didn't need to be used, didn't even need to be thought about during the years when we were living under other people and other, under governments and under rulers. And so Rav Natan Lovis Cordoza, he's really, he's bringing up some of these ideas. He's a very Orthodox rabbi and he totally believes in halakha, but he also thinks that there's perhaps time to change certain things. Everything, every psak that he comes up with, every decision he comes up with is based on halakha of the past. Um, very often, if you learn, if you go like into the Mishnah, if you go into the oral law that was written down after the after the rabbis are being slaughtered by the Romans in the second century, and if the teachers of oral law are being killed, you better write it down or it's all going to be lost. And that's really the basis for writing down the Mishnah and later on, of course, the commentaries and the Talmud and the Gemara. But every one of what he says is based on a minority opinion. He's not just conjuring things up out of the sky or based on the rabbis of the Middle East, the Babylonian rabbis and the great rabbis who lived in this part of the world that we tend to not really learn as much as we learned the Rashis and the Rambams and more of the European rabbis, more of the Ashkenazi rabbis. And he's saying that we're living in the Middle East now, which I feel very strongly. All right. This is very much a Middle Eastern country. It's one of the joys of my life to understand that. And I'm 100% Ashkenazi, but I, I realize the beauty of the Middle East and that things here need to run a little bit differently. So everything that he's saying is either based on minority opinion because he, he believes that the minority opinions were written down because there was a time that they were going to need to be put into play. So at that time, the, you know, the majority of rabbis said, do it this way. So we did it this way. But we still wrote down. What the other rabbis said, perhaps for a future time where that was more uh, in keeping with what was happening. And so I love that kind of thinking because I do think that to some degree Judaism has stagnated. And I think there's a tremendous value that's being put on strictness, which is not what Judaism is about. Um, and I'm speaking to you, you're sitting in England. Uh, so one of the thoughts that's constantly in, our, in my mind is that I think that um, Judaism was very negatively affected by Christianity. Uh, what we call Ashkenazi Jewry. We lived with Christians for 1,500 years, so it's obvious that's the context of our world. But for example, the ideas of hell and of an angry God, that's not Jewish. We have a loving God, all right? And hell is a place 
far from me in Jerusalem, Gai Hinom, it's a cool place. So the idea of people being punished and of sinning and, you know, that kind of heaviness that has come into Judaism, I don't think is really inherently Jewish. And um, there's there's a different kind of a, of a mood, if you will, um, of the of the rabbis and of the sages of the Middle East. And I think that, and I love what he's saying, okay, because he, he is a rebel, but one of the things that he says, and it's even the title of one of his books, is Judaism is supposed to be rebellious. Abraham Avinu was the biggest rebel mankind has ever known. He is walking out of a pagan world. Everybody believed in gods, in the pantheon. And he's saying, no, there's only one. And he's staking his life on it and he's moving. He doesn't even know where he's going in Lech Lecha, which is coming up, in order to follow that God. And that is a, an incredibly rebellious move that shapes everything. And the fact that we stopped being so rebellious, that many of us stopped thinking for ourselves and questioning. Um, I understand why a lot of questions can be dangerous to the authorities and you don't want people turning everything upside down. but. People, one of my, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's who I am. I'm constantly asking why. I'm like a two-year-old. I learn a tremendous amount of history. And so I know what happened. The question is why it happened. Somebody made a choice. And that's why we went in a certain direction or something happened, maybe a natural disaster. So I'm always asking the why. And I think the Judaism is supposed to also be asking the why. And in a glorious time where we have sovereignty back and we have our own state, maybe it's time to unpack some of the things that we did that, as I said, kept us going for so long. But maybe now we have the time to challenge ourselves and see what now is like can be changed, maybe should be changed, maybe should be eased up on. For example, we have at last count, over 300,000 Israelis who aren't Jewish according to halakha, right? Their mothers aren't Jewish or they didn't convert Orthodox to Judaism. They mainly come from Russia and the Ukraine because the law in Israel is the backside of the Nazi law. Meaning if you have one Jewish grandparent, the Nazis would kill you. And the same thing with moving to Israel, one Jewish grandparent and you can come. But it doesn't fit in with halacha, which means it has to be matri matriarchal. And so you have a lot of Israelis here who love Israel, who are in the army and would die for the Jewish people, who are speaking fluent Hebrew, totally involved. But according to halacha, they're not Jewish. And so I think that something has to be done to bring them into the fold. And there are ways of doing so um, to do something with conversion and a lot of other things. That's just one example. And that's a hot potato. And he takes on the hot potatoes, but he refuses to quit. And he refuses to stop saying like, you know, almost like a modern day Navi in a certain sense. He would never call himself that. He's a very modest man. So I love his books as well because his books are speaking to the future and speaking to, to maybe some changes. But it means we have to be thinking and we have to be looking around at the circumstances. And if the circumstances have changed, maybe there's certain things that we do that, you know, they need to change as well. There, there's challenges that are happening in the Jewish world all the time. When you have, let's say, a hamburger that has no meat in it because it's been chemically made from something in the lab now, right? Is it meat? Is it considered par of? Mm -hmm. these, are, these are electricity, right? Why we don't use it. The decision was that we don't use electricity on Shabbat because it's somehow like making a fire, which was the basis of not doing it. But that wasn't such a simple decision when it was made either, right? And when it comes to Shabbat, and this is the discussion that I have, let's say, with seminary girls, you know, and I said, look, you can technically keep Shabbat 
without breaking the laws. You could put your TV on a Shabbat clock, on a timer and watch a show. You could, there's computers and there's phones that are out there that are technically, you're not breaking Shabbat. But there's a there's an atmosphere. There's a, there's a, a, a tu Shabbat that that's what you're breaking. So is it so much about the dry law of halacha or is it understanding the bigger picture in terms of uh, a spiritual atmosphere that we're trying to maintain. And so I think sometimes there's been a lot of emphasis on the halakha and not enough emphasis on the spiritual aspect, on the relationship we have with Hashem. For a lot of people to think about Hashem, they mumble prayers and they go through things. But like, is Hashem really in their lives? Like, I really feel Hashem in my life. I think he loves me so much. And he's had faith in me and encouraged me when nobody else did. And that's a tremendous feeling to go through life with. And I wonder if everybody feels like that. If everybody's had those moments where they just knew Hashem was right there with them. Um, and that's, uh, so those are the things that I strive for in my personal life. But when you live in a country that's a Jewish country, there are some really big items that can't, the can can't be kicked down the road. It's got to be dealt with. And that's why I like Rav, Rabbi Natan Lopez Cordoza, because he opens those, that Pandora's box, if you will, and he challenges and he, he's coming. He's not like a reform rabbi who's just trying to upset the, the apple cart. He's coming from a place of deep love for Judaism, deep understanding and knowledge of the text. And he's saying, maybe there's some things here that this has come the time that, you know, we need to make some changes. So those would be my three books, two very modern people, uh, if you will. Of course, you know, Rabbi Sachs is no longer with us, but definitely part of, you know, this century and the Tanakh itself. So um, that that's what I would take to my desert island, which I hope I never get to. I wouldn't mind going just, you know, to some beach one day, but I definitely wouldn't want to be alone. Does it involve being alone? <laughs> I don't know. But very okay. interesting, very interesting pieces of Torah and really inspiring. Um, I love the connection to the modern world with, and also taking the Tanakh and bringing it into the modern world. So important. And thank you so much for sharing My three amazing pieces of Torah with us today. And thank you for everything you do. But we need to be thinking and challenging ourselves all the time. And that's how we grow. If you're staying in your comfort zone, you're not growing. You go out of your comfort zone and then your comfort zone gets bigger. And uh, that's what, you know, I've been trying to do. And I see that's probably what you're doing with your podcast. And really kudos to you for, for doing that and taking the lead on that. Uh, for, for a young woman, that's pretty impressive. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisra. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.